Last week we had a chance to look at the plagues of Egypt and all that began when God said, I'm going to show myself to the world. That was the purpose statement that God gave for doing the plagues. And we looked at the first nine plagues, a lot of frogs and bugs and blood and darkness and hail and fire. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was still with a hard heart, unrelenting and unwilling to let the Israelites go free from slavery. So that's where we were last week, and we're going to jump into the final plague tonight. And this is uh, really captured in sort of a long section of Scripture. We're going to skip a little bit, but we're going to read enough that we'll get a good feel for what's happening in the story. So if you'd like to follow along with me, I'll be reading from Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 through 10 to start. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. Indeed, when he lets you go, he will drive you away. Tell the people that every man is to ask his neighbor, and every woman is to ask her neighbor for objects of silver and gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, Moses himself was a man of great importance in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's officials. And in the sight of the people. Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go through Egypt. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne. To the firstborn of the female slave who is behind the handmill. And all the firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a loud cry throughout the whole land of Egypt. Such as never been or will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl at any of the Israelites, not at people, not at animals, so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Then all these officials of yours shall come down to me and bow low to me, saying, Leave us, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave you. And in hot anger, Moses left Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you in order that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. And then continuing on through chapter 12, verses 1, starting verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Take the whole congregation of Israel that on that, that on the tenth of this month they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat of it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted over the fire with its head, legs, and inner organs. You shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. This is how you shall eat it. 
your loins girded, that means ready to go, right? Dressed and ready to go. Your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is a Passover of the Lord. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments, for I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then jumping forward to verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his officials, and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud cry in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron in the night and said, Rise up, go away from my people, both you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord, as you said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you said, and be gone. And bring a blessing on me, too. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we enter into the story of your people this morning. Your story. Knowing that we, too, are connected and a part of it. Though our understanding is limited, we seek your Holy Spirit, knowing that your Spirit inspired the first writers of this text. Your Spirit inspired those who preserved it up until this day. And your Spirit is here, moving among us so that we can hear with ears to hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a firstborn child, this has never been my favorite story. <laughs> Why the firstborn? It should have been the middle child. That's what I don't understand. Sorry, Kyle. You're not middle. You're the youngest. I'm not the middle child. I can say that. Uh, but, you know, it's... Sorry. If my brother ever hears this, I'm in trouble, I guess. This is not an easy story, but it is a very important story in the history of God's people. And I'd like to help us see at least a part of why that is today as we look at this. This is the final plague, but as you can see, it's substantially different than those that have come before in a number of ways. Not that there were some, like the hail killed some people. Um, And that one, though, people were able to spare themselves as they um, revered the Lord. This is different because of the way it's specifically said. It it affects every single person, no matter how rich they are, no matter how poor they are. There's not a family without someone dead. This is not a celebration night, but it is a freedom night. The Passover. The Passover, this... In the story, it's a plague, but as you can hear, I read part of it. There's been multiple traditions merged in here into this text. And you can kind of hear the change in tone. If you read the parts in between, you'll see more of it. There's what we call the priestly tradition in here as well. It's sort of some historical information because this became a very important festival for the Jewish people, for the people of Israel from this time forward. 
So there was very specific instructions. We get more of those in there about how exact, exactly this is to be observed. And for, from this time, from the time this story happened, all the way up until this very day, for anyone who is Jewish, this is an extremely important um, festival or feast that they observe. In fact, um, there's instructions here in Scripture about it, of course. But this festival gets connected in with what was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You heard a little bit about that, about the unleavened, which just means no yeast. So it's, it's flat, unrisen bread. And the reason for that, the tradition says, the reason for that is because they were basically kicked out really quickly after this happened. They didn't have time to let their bread rise. And so part of that is a memorial to that. But there was another festival of unleavened bread. We think they sort of came together in this process. But the Passover then um, is, has, for Jewish people today, is still super meaningful. And it's crazy how religious you can be around something like this. Um, and this is not at all to diminish it, but I want you to hear how important this has been for the people of God. So even up until this day, um, the, and of course there's a lot of different Jewish traditions now, Jewish families that observe things differently, but one of the larger groups and one of the more conservative groups, the Orthodox Jews, they will go through a process of eliminating Everything leavened, everything that might have yeast in it, everything that it comes from wheat, barley, oats, spelt, and rye, and some also include any legumes, okay? Anything like that in your house, they go through this process of getting rid of all of it in order to celebrate the Passover. And then there's been different traditions in terms, many Jews don't actually eat lamb, but some do. Some eat other things, but it, can, it sort of culminates with this um, Seder meal. And there's been this tradition passed down where they read from a book and it tells the story of the, the being set free from Egypt. I know uh, Michelle and Tom have hosted a, a Seder um, meal and connected it with how this connects with um, Jesus and the, the, you know, come when we're coming up to the time of crucifixion because they still, they still, Coincide, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. So, these, there's anything that's um, you know leavened is, is called a hamats, hamats, and this food has to be rid from the house. And so, there's instructions. Some people still use a feather to do this. There's rules on whether you can use a candle or whether you can use a flashlight, and what you do if you forget something. It's developed this whole process where many Orthodox Jews will have to sell. The night before Passover, they'll have to sell anything that falls into this category to, uh, to someone who's not Jewish. And so a rabbi works, serves as an intermediary. So if you've forgotten anything, you can sort of sell it so it's not yours, so you're not violating God's law. And then they say, well, what if you're traveling between like New York and L.A.? And so they have a whole process for how you can sell it at the right time to still be celebrating the Passover in a different time zone and on and on and on and on. Uh, it's pretty interesting if you want to you know, just look into this because this is religion. This is what religion can do. But it's connected to an identity story and that's why it's such a big deal. For the people of God, throughout the, the first covenant, throughout the, what we call the Old Testament, which really is just the, the old covenant, okay, before the new covenant comes in Christ, this was a defining moment of salvation being set free 
from slavery, of God intervening in politics, in God intervening in the world, God showing his power as opposed to the world's power, and God setting his people free. Now, having said that, uh, I don't want to skirt around, I never do, I don't want to skirt around the really difficult part of this text, which is the fact that God kills all of these people. And this has often been a a struggle for folks as they come to this text. And some have gone so far as when they look at Old Testament texts like this, they'll say, that's a completely different God. Or, I just want to get rid of that. I don't want to deal with that. And yet, I think there's some things we need to consider. I'm not going to give you an easy, simple explanation. I don't think there is one. I'll let you sort of wrestle with this a little bit, but I do have a few things I want us to consider. First of all, when you're reading it in the context of the story, if you go back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord says, I've observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. It's very likely that on a daily basis, women, children, men who are in slavery in Egypt are being beaten, abused, and killed. This has been going on for 400 years. When you think about the history of our country, and almost double that, and think about that being the story of your people for that long. And God says, I've heard their cry. I understand their sufferings. God has always been, throughout Scripture and up to this day, been a God who cares and has a heart for the oppressed and for the poor. And Jesus reveals that very clearly in the way he relates to people. The other thing we need to understand is that God says in Exodus 4.22, this is going back to chapter 4, Then he's talking to Moses. He says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I said to you, let my son go that he may worship me. But you refused to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. You think about what we would do for our kids. And God is essentially saying, you have been treating my firstborn son in this way. My children in this way. And I'm not going to stand by any longer. That's the first thing I want us to consider when we think about the difficulty of this text. The other thing, the second thing, is that we have a hard time um, talking about sin in our culture. It's not as easy as it used to be. It's not as easy for us to admit sin, I think, as it used to be. Because we want to say, well, you know, there's lots of gray areas and everything's kind of... Okay, if you believe it that way. And of course, we all get pushed to our limits on that. But in Scripture, sin is taken extremely seriously. Sin is rebellion against your God, against your Creator, against your Lord. And so we see from the time of Genesis forward that God says, sin deserves death. The payment for sin is death. And so if we were to be reading this story, I think the way that people for millennia have read this story, there's no innocence In Egypt, (laughs) there's no innocent people among the Israelites. There are no innocents. Sin is rebellion against God. And this rebellion deserves death. 
The other part that's really important here is something I mentioned that reformer, the Reformed Church, which our Presbyterian tradition comes out of, has always taken very seriously, which is God, the idea of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is really hard to even nail down and define, but when we're talking about God's sovereignty, what we're really saying is that God is in control. God knows more than we could ever possibly know. While we look at a, a, you know, a limited view of our lifetime or of a history of a, you know, maybe a few millennia, God looks at the history of all creation and forward to where it all comes to an end. God is sovereign. God acts in ways that we can't possibly understand or explain. And the last thing I want to mention is that God is always revealed to be a good God. So while it is hard for me to come up with a simple explanation as to why God would kill the firstborn son of the prisoner, as well as the firstborn son of Pharaoh, I do understand that through my lifetime even, and through all of God's revelation, that God is good. God always acts in ways that are right. I know that God is patient. I know that God is gracious. And even in the story, we can say the fact that God allows his people to suffer for 400 years before taking these kinds of measures to set them free would be a testament to God's patience. And right here, I, I just want to just want to throw in a little piece we don't see in Scripture. But for most of the um, modern Jews who observe and celebrate Passover in the story, there is still a often a part of that service. And I don't know, Michelle, I'd be interested to hear if you guys ever did this, but there's a part of this service where there's a recognition of the sorrow for the death of the Egyptians who die in this process, understanding that they too are God's people. So in that sense, again, it's not a, it's like many stories of independence or freedom or, um, you know, you want to look at the cost of setting the slaves free in this nation. You know, the worst, I think many would say probably the worst um, war in the history of the United States was the Civil War in terms of death and brother killing brother and all of that. The cost of freedom has often been cost a lot. And so at the same time, when we celebrate these moments, we also mourn, understanding that there was a, a serious cost that was paid for them. So again, um, I could spend the whole sermon and probably a whole series trying to dig into this idea of why God does things the way God does. But I want us to hear that there is that struggle within this story. But as we move forward to the New Testament, this is where our eyes really become open. And for many of the early Christians who were coming out of a Jewish background, the connection was so extremely clear as they heard about or saw or knew what Jesus had done. And they hear the story and they understand this Passover to really just be the setting, the background for what was to come and what God was to do later. John 3.16, we all know that passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. The Passover festival was taking place during the time when Jesus and his disciples had their last supper. 
So we're about ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion, which is a direct connection back to this meal, which is a direct connection back to this Passover meal, which is a connection back to this first Passover when God set his people free. It's a, it's a, a thread that runs through the story all the way up into our lives. Jesus and his disciples were um, celebrating this, this time of the Passover. There's, if you look at the Gospels, there's some debate as to exactly what night, perhaps, this meal happened and how it happened. But what we do know is it was during this Passover festival, right before Jesus was arrested, that he instituted this meal, this Lord's Supper, this communion. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul will say to the church in Corinth, he'll say, clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch as you really are unleavened. For our Paschal lamb, our Passover lamb, Christ has been sacrificed. Now the Catholic church took that a step further and they, for them, and for our Catholic brothers and sisters who will be um, having mass There's still a belief that there's a re-sacrifice of Christ being made, that that Passover lamb is being sacrificed again and again. And we say, no, that's not what's happening. It's actually a table. It's actually a meal as we continue this tradition of having this meal. But when Jesus talked to people about eating his body and drinking his blood, if you go back in John's gospel, this happened before the Last Supper. And it says many disciples left Jesus after this. And I'm sure they were muttering under this breath. Their breath this man's a lunatic. He's crazy, right? Eat his body, drink his blood. What is he talking about? And then, of course, that first you know, meal, when Jesus is having this meal with his disciples, and he's talking about my body and my blood, what must have they been thinking? I think it's become so... So common for us, we think of, you know, the painting of the Last Supper and we think of all those, you know, we've heard this story at um, Lent every year and at Easter and we just think it was sort of normal. But can you imagine being one of Jesus' disciples sitting around the table and he's handing you a piece of bread and saying, here, eat my body. Here's some wine, drink my blood. <coughs> what must they have thought? Well, I imagine because of the time, and we know actually from Scripture, because of the time of year, and because of what was happening, after Jesus goes to the cross, and he dies, and then he's resurrected, they understood Jesus was the Passover lamb. You see, every year, there would be in the temple, before the temple was destroyed, every year, there would be this mass bringing of Um, of lamb and goats to be sacrificed in the temple every year. So John's gospel will say that Jesus is on the cross while these sacrifices are being made. But do you see how for us it opens our eyes we go, yeah, that Jesus says, eat my body and drink my blood. And you go back to the story in Exodus and how Jesus sets his, I mean, how God sets his people free and how they have to eat this lamb and how the blood is placed over the doorpost. And when that happens, you're saved. Not only saved, you're protected, your family is safe, and then you're allowed to go free. You're no longer a slave. So for Christians, the connection was immediately obvious. Jesus is our Passover lamb. We deserved to die, but we've been 
passed over. God has forgiven us, not because we did anything to earn it, but because some blood was shed, the blood of Jesus. And then we can go back to the story, we can read it, and we can go, wow, you know, really, like Pharaoh, we have had a hard and stubborn hearts. If we think about all the opportunities that God has given us to repent from our sin and how we struggle to turn away from it, all the times God has said, no, I'm in control, I'm Lord, and we say, no, no, actually, I'll give you this much, God, but in here, I'm in control, and I'm Lord. And so Pharaoh doesn't become just the bad guy, but Pharaoh becomes sort of the prototype for ourselves, and we understand our need for saving and our need for grace And like the Passover meal, when you read the story, and it's not really clear how that blood on a doorpost, or why blood on a doorpost, would protect your family, or protect you, or allow you to be passed over. Just like how there's a mystery in this original story, when we come to the Lord's Supper, we believe there's still a mystery happening. Something we don't understand. I mean, this is... In this case, today, this is bread I bought at QFC. (laughs) And grape juice from QFC. How can that possibly be a means of grace? And yet the church has always claimed there's something God does as we celebrate this meal that is really beyond us. But there is an inworking of grace of God as we do it. It's an important connection So this story that we hear in Exodus isn't just a story that we hear and we go, oh, that's kind of nice. That's interesting. It's a big deal to our Jewish brothers and sisters. We get that, but, you know, that's about it. No, it doesn't end there. It continues all the way up into the worship that we're having this morning. With that in mind, I'm going to invite um, Jeff and Mandy to come forward. They're going to help us serve this morning.